Welcome to this edition of the IWI's CFITrainer.net podcast. Before we get started, we'd like to say thanks to those who've supported us in our endeavor to create CFI Trainer and this podcast. The podcast and CFITrainer.net are funded by DHS FEMA Fire Prevention and Safety Grants through the AFG, or Assistance to Firefighter, grant program. We're also supported by the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. This month, we're grateful for the support of UL. Having working smoke alarms is critical to public safety. New technology is enabling alarms to be even more effective to better distinguish between smoke from cooking and that from a potentially life-threatening fire. Learn more about this new technology and how it's being incorporated into new editions of safety standards by visiting smokealarms.ul.org. We have two topics on the agenda today, a report from the location of wildland fire investigation training that was conducted by the IWI California chapter in September 2019, and some interesting thoughts on the potential of big data in fire prevention. First, CFITrainer.net went on location to California for a first-hand look at wildland fire investigation training conducted by the California chapter of IAAI, which is called the California Conference of Arson Investigators. On that trip, we had the opportunity to speak with many folks connected with the training. Besides just learning and reporting, I was surrounded by welcoming people who really let me into their work. Everyone was passionate about their job and their passion migrated to me. Wildland fire is a huge issue in our country, and we know at CFI Trainer that we have to be paying attention and getting the best info to you, our audience. We'll open with Tom Fee. He's the past president of the IAAI. He's an IAAI CFI and a CCAI CFI, and the chairperson of the CCAI Training Committee. You should know that we are planning on this wildland feature of the podcast to have three parts. Two parts of the podcast will be audio and interviews. That'll be section one, which you'll hear today, and then uh, section two or part two uh, when we come back either later this month or in the next month during the next podcast. The third part is going to be something special. We're going to be setting up a micro website, a small website that'll probably be inside CFI Trainer that will allow you to take a look at what we believe is uh, what you want to see the most to see what happens during these fires. To do that, we're going to gather and edit some video taken by all the players who shot this training in different ways, from the ground, within the fire, and from the air, before, during, and after the fire. In the second part of the podcast, we will continue our coverage of the burns, and we will talk to Dr. Vito Berbaskis about his work at the fires and validating different indicators. Let's first talk to Tom Fee, and then we'll get in the truck with Greg Lidicote, one of the instructors in San Luis Obispo. He's an IWI CFI, a CFEI, and an investigator, instructor, and expert on wildland fires from Minden, Nevada. Let's get to Tom Fee first. So I'm here with Tom Fee, who is leading this effort that's going on out here in California. So tell me about the overall importance of training wildfire, training training these investigators about wildfire. Well, wildfires have kind of taken over our country and the discussion of fires turned from structure fires to wildfires a few years ago when California got hit, Florida got hit, Texas got hit. Just about all the states experienced wildfires that were 
not experienced in the past. And so it not only is it the, the, the talk of the country, it's also the, the number one fo uh, focus is how do you put them out and how do you find out what started them and where they started. This particular class is a lead-in to a full-blown investigation class, but it's, it's to take and provide an introductory uh, effort and get the interest built up in fire investigators in wildland fire investigation. Wildland fire investigation is different than structural fire investigation in that the indicators are all different. We don't have trees in our living room and we don't have couches out in the forest normally. So consequently, you're looking at different things uh, in, in both types of fires. So what we're doing here is we're showing them what the different wildland indicators are. You're looking at fence posts, you're looking at trees, you're looking at utility poles, you're looking at rocks on the ground, you're looking at uh, any debris that's laying on the ground. Anything that leaves a fire pattern uh, is an indicator as to which way that fire was moving on the ground. And the first thing you have to do in wildland fire investigation is follow your indicators back to the source, where it started. Then you start looking for the cause. If you do it the other way around, it just doesn't come across well. I mean, you, you don't get a, a good ending. Got it. We'll take a break until uh, Chainsaw Man is done. So I'm actually in a truck right now with Greg Lidicott, and he's one of the instructors for the class that's going to be on Wildland here. We're out near Saint, uh, San Luis Obispo, and we're going to be taking a little stroll, actually a little drive around an area that we're looking at, which is supposed to be around three parcels uh, three acres a piece. They're supposed to be wildland uh, burn area for our training. The vegetation or the fuel for this is a lot longer uh, than a lot of us ex expected uh, from looking at the aerial photos. And what we've got is uh, vegetation that's anywhere from, well, let's say a foot to six feet tall and mounds of dirt and uh, geography is not just flat. It's going up and down quite a bit. So as we're driving around here, we're seeing different fire breaks that are uh, already in place. There's some roads that are about 10 to 15 feet wide that have been cut through this parcel. Um, so that's good news. The rough part is is that they're only about 10-15 feet wide. Uh, if there was an actual fire going on out here we'd need them to be wider to actually make this stop. So some of the preparations right now going on are to try to get those fire breaks to be wider, bring some kind of heavy machinery out here to scrape some of this so we've got some wider fire breaks to be able to do more controlled burns. So Greg, tell me a little bit about the setup. You just found uh, one of the parcels or a, what do you call it, a plot? Plot, yeah. And uh, part of our goal here is is we're gonna set up uh, a scenario where we have possibly up to three different sources of ignition. And the goal is to get the students to find the right the right source of ignition to start the fire. So being a, a paved road, which is typical, uh, it could be something like a blown tire, the remains of a blown tire um, could have started the fire. We might have cigarette butts 
you know, cigarette fire. Um, in this case, we're probably not going to have, we're not going to meet the criteria at all for a cigarette to start a fire. Um, and then um, we may have a, a, something else that we'll put out there, like a, uh, an actual arson device. So, so tell me a little bit, because it was surprising to me, because when I look at this, it all looks very dry. Um, but I know you all were looking at humidity, uh, relative humidity and those kind of things. W why would you rule out a cigarette butt with this? And I, I know you wouldn't roll that out in an investigation, but in a training setup right now, uh, why are you saying that? Because cigarette uh, studies done um, have shown that a cigarette cannot start a wildland fire as easily as most people think. It's been one of those um, uh, catch-all things where, uh, you know, in the past where an investigator couldn't find a source, and, but there's plenty of cigarette butts alongside the road, so he'd blame it on a cigarette butt uh, or a cigarette fire. Well, the studies have shown that you, if you got relative humidity, basically over 20%, and the temperature doesn't get to up till above 80 degrees, a cigarette can't start a fire. And we'll show you that. Uh, uh, we'll sometime, a couple times during the day here, I'll, I'll lay a cigarette out here in the grass and find fuels and, and we won't get a fire. We have other issues that are more, actually becoming more important. Uh, for example, you know, we have a focus, a prevention focus on cigarettes, not throwing them out your window and stuff. But uh, particularly in the, in the West here in California, Nevada, Utah, Arizona and stuff, we have target shooting. People going out on public lands and, and just, you know, setting up a, a steel target or something like that. And we're actually getting more fires from those than we are from cigarettes. Than we are from cigarettes, that's right. And how's, how's that happening? It's, uh, it's the shearing effect of the bullet striking a, a solid object. So when the, when the bullet hits something, it, it shears the, the metal, and the metal then becomes very hot. Well, on a wildland fuels, the typical ignition temperature is 450 degrees. That's not very much. A uh, lead bullet striking a, a solid object um, and again, this is one of the things that's been tested, uh, actually gets up to about 750 degrees. So it's not the gun firing. No, it is the bullet striking a solid object. And it, it's, it, like I said, it's, it's, yeah, it's kind of a heat transfer, you know, turning energy, that, that energy of velocity and, and, and then stopping it. And then the shearing effect of the, of the bullet coming apart. Interesting. And then that mass of the bullet is able to retain and radiate heat over a sufficient period of time to ignite the fine fuels. My name is Terry Taylor. I'm a retired fire captain investigator from the East Fork Fire District in uh, Minden, Nevada. Um, I've been a fire investigator since 1980, and uh, I've uh, been an adjunct instructor in the National Fire Academy's Fire Arson Investigation Program. Um, we've been teaching FI 210 in Minden, Nevada. We've taught over 320 students over the last 15 years uh, under the aegis of the Nevada chapter of IAAI and the Sierra Front Wildfire Cooperators, which is a bi-state organization involving the uh, California and Nevada, U.S. Forest Service Bureau of Land Management, and all the local entities, uh, Lake Tahoe Basin, uh, basically from Bridgeport, California, all the way up to uh, Susanville, California, in that area. So the local government entities are all members. Uh, everybody contributes in and we're able to teach uh, FI 210, a 40 hour class uh, at the Minden Tahoe Airport and have uh, successfully graduated a lot of students. You mentioned uh, Dr. Babraskis is gonna be doing some things out here. So give me a quick rundown of, of the goal. The, there's, there's multiple goals, I guess is probably the best way to put it. Um, Dr. Babraskis has some ideas 
uh, on trying to validate the methodology that we use in FI210 and uh, that there has been no real scientific paper even though those of us that do this uh, we've had it work we've had it take us to a fire that we didn't know where it started um, the science is here we have to go along with the science and use the scientific method with a systematic approach which FI210 does do so we need to be able to create a spot where Dr. Babrowskis can test um, basically where are the different movement patterns and uh, we also have students coming in so we have to be able to give them just a quick overview and sort of introduce them to the topic typically when we teach the class we break them into groups of four or five people uh, teams and uh, let them investigate their plots uh, when we do classes they usually have at least five fire scenes they can investigate at, uh, by the end of the class so in that 40 hours they get they get five Five different fire scenes. One of them is our, their final practical. And again, we typically, the last couple fires, they have a couple of ignition sources and they have to identify the correct ignition source. So a lot of times we'll use a cigarette, but you know, a cigarette, well, we know the criteria here, we'll never get one to start probably the entire week. We will not be able to get a fire start with a cigarette. But we'll put them out there and see if they bite. <laughs> But it, it'll also improve things around here too. Instead of this this uh, junk, if you will, um, vegetation, it should come back basically in grass, hopefully. And so, you know, even though the the quail like the brush and stuff, um, it's going to be better off for most of the, the wildlife here. It'll also be safer, won't it, for the buildings that are around here? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, we're right now we're looking at fuel breaks that aren't wide enough to uh, protect the buildings like this auditorium here. Um, this field break around here is not sufficient to protect it. Um, they've got a probably, looks like about a 20 foot fuel break around it. And, you know, basically the, the minimum criteria here in California is 30 feet. But, um, I haven't seen a 30 foot clearance around any of these buildings here. Sometimes you just need to make the door or the window a little bit bigger. That's what we're hearing now. So we're actually going into the base now. Why, why are we doing that, Terry? We're doing that so we can get access to an area where there are eucalyptus saplings that we're going to uh, remove and bring back to our burn area. We, we have an area that has a lot of dry grass and we have an area that, and it also has uh, tall uh, weeds that are over six feet tall and then there's brush. And so we need some saplings uh, to represent young trees uh, all of these all of these items when a fire goes through give us evidence of what in fact uh, the the fire movement is is a fire moving forward is it moving sideways or is it moving backwards and those are those are one of the things that we are teaching uh, in the class itself um, and we all have to break out our IDs here nothing like an electric chainsaw to make work take a little bit longer got two guys out here cutting down eucalyptus as Terry was telling us talking about logistics you know we're sitting here we cut down these eucalyptus trees which you know you'd think already drove three four miles to go get trees stuck those in the back of a pickup truck and now we got to worry about how we get back 
because uh, we can't go driving on the highway with eucalyptus trees hanging out of the back of a pickup. So more logistics, contact the base, get a specific gate opened and bring those trees through at a slow rate of speed. Another interesting uh, sort of sidebar here, you know, different agencies do need to get different approvals and uh, we're waiting for big front bladed uh, heavy vehicle that's going to push, uh, create the fire brakes. And uh, for that to be released, they need to get a letter. Thank God for email. Yeah, we're just going to talk. I, uh, I'm here with Carlo. Carlo, what's your full name? My name is Carlo Guajardo. Uh, I'm coming up from Orange County. Yep, I'm with Forensic Fire uh, with Jim Brown. Tell me what you're doing. We, uh, we heard people talking about drones. Sure, yeah. I'm going to go ahead and put this drone up. Um, I'm going to do some before shots, videos and stills of the area in which we're going to burn. Uh, just so we can have a comparison before and after. That's what we're looking at doing today. So you were uh, near SLO, so uh, you, you have to get clearance? Uh, especially here where we're at, there's an airport nearby and you're not supposed to be flying around airports. Airports, they actually geofence the area so you can't take off. In most cases, airports, uh, national parks, uh, you're not supposed to fly around hospitals, places like that, but they actually got clearance from the a nearby airport so we can fly these drones. Great to hear. Awesome. We'll look forward to your footage. Okay, thank you. So we just got a little bit of a news flash after all that happy communication about the fact that we had approval to bring in the cat to be able to create those fuel brakes. Uh, we just found out that got nixed because uh, it's a tracked vehicle. So now the search is on for something that's not a tracked vehicle that can, uh, that can cut the brakes. Oh yeah in the next couple hours. Well, what I'm saying is the dividing here, dividing these in here, if a hand crew cut a line, and then we had like what happened in Paso Robles. So we're obviously hearing conversation about the options to create new fire breaks. Um, inch and a half wildland line, or you could pull a peanut lines and deploy down to stop the jumping. Here's, an, here's another thought, Terry, is we're gonna cut down these power poles. Why don't we chop one of those power poles into about a 10 foot length? and drag it and drag it and knock down the weeds we'll just crush crush the weeds down and that and that'll give us a width to run an engine through uh, give us a break that's actually a great idea i'll 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 tie it onto the back of my truck and we'll just drive i'll just drive right through and make a break terry did i just hear you say that greg had a good idea yes <laughs> yes and and we've known each other long enough we've we rarely agree about great ideas. <laughs> he originally, I had him set up where he'd have two cameras. Now he's down to one. So, but I know Scotty, I'll put him in turnouts. I'll just wait him out through the fire and turn the camera. <laughs> oh, I don't want to, I don't want to. We didn't actually just hear that. <laughs> we're joking and yeah. We need to make sure we're clear about that. Scott Baker, arson bomb investigator, state of California, California State Fire Marshals, Fire Engineering Investigation Division. Wow, okay, and you're here doing some things with photography, so I wanted to find out a little bit about what you were doing with your camera setup. We have a, a 50 caliber ammo can, and we have it lined with one inches of hardwood, one inch of hardwood, and we have one end of it cut out with uh, thermal glass we've got from a uh, uh, fireplace store 
and they've cut it to fit the box and we put thermal glue on it. We've already used it a couple of times, it works. So what we're trying to do is, is see visually the fire that's actually it's approaching the camera as it overruns the camera, as it passes the camera, and then we'll swing the camera around and show how the fire is advancing away from the camera. Hopefully we'll be able to see the patterns we always talk about, how they're formed, and we have this hypothesis how they're made, but now we'll actually be able to see how they're made, we'll watch it. So we're walking out, I'm gonna, I'm gonna head over to these guys who are gonna be dropping some of these indicators. It's like a orange, orangey red ammo can sitting out with a glass window on it in the middle of a 20 some mile an hour wind. Looks nice. The nice thing here with the patterns we've got, we have undisturbed area and disturbed area. Johnny is driving out into the brush. He's gonna make a set and he's gonna leave. And you'll be able to see the patterns on the ground where Johnny drove his vehicle out here because it mastered ground down. We have some trees uh, in the area. Hopefully we'll see some really nice burn patterns on them also. All in all, the, the weather's still holding good for us. Um, I'm pretty excited about tomorrow morning. I think when we light this thing, we're gonna see some nice fire and, and uh, get some good results. Our second topic today is a buzzword that many of us have probably heard but don't really understand. Yet it has the potential to really change the practice of fire prevention through better data reporting and analysis. That buzzword is big data. First, let's set aside any predispositions we might have to equate big data with big brother. In the context of fire investigation and fire prevention, we aren't talking about the surveillance or covert monitoring. What we're talking about here is how we can better capture, store, analyze, and share information about fire causes in the service of identifying ways we can prevent fires from occurring in the first place. Think about it. All the recorded fire causes in every country since the beginning of record keeping. Analyzing that data can't really be done with traditional methods. One research organization, the University of Sheffield in England, recently took on the challenge of using predictive analytics, which is analysis of historical data for the purpose of predicting future events in fire prevention. This is an interesting emerging field that we're keeping our eye on. We plan to bring you other interviews and follow up on this topic in the future. We will be highlighting some of the researchers working with big data and fire prevention and hopefully some of their findings. We've talked before on this podcast about the challenges of collecting data on fire causes here in the United States, including the fact that this data collection is not mandatory, it is often incomplete or unfinished. Fire cause determination might not be made until well after a reporting form is filed or may be changed at a later date without the reporting being updated. And that undetermined has been a poorly understood term and thus often not used properly as a fire cause determination or classification. If we are truly to harness the power of big data, we're going to have to take a hard look at how these data sets are defined, reported, compiled, stored, and sorted, so we can have confidence in the conclusions from the analysis of that data. More on this in the future. Don't forget, we're going to have a part two of the wildland uh, feature, let's call it, when we went out to California. And we're going to be uh, making sure that we do the microsite that we discussed, where we're going to allow you to take a look at uh, the images and the video that were shot at the training. Once again, I want to thank all of those at the CCAI and San Luis Obispo and uh, express to them, you know, a lot of gratitude for having us out there, 
uh, getting us anything we needed and letting us be part of any part of the training that we wanted to so that we could record interviews. Thanks for joining us today on this podcast. Stay safe. We'll see you next time on CFITrainer.net. For the IWI and CFITrainer.net, I'm Rod Ammon.